Welcome to The Wrap on WKXLAM and FM. I'm Paul Hodes, and today we are talking with Executive Counselor Cindy Warmington. Cindy, in her career, has been a healthcare attorney. She was a colleague of mine at the law firm of Shaheen and Gordon. Uh, she started there more than 20 years ago and was partner and chair of the healthcare practice group. She advocated uh, for the expansion of substance use disorder treatment services, increased funding for mental health services. She came to her legal career honestly because she worked in healthcare for two decades before that, including as a medical technologist in hospital laboratories and in various healthcare management roles. So Counselor Warmington is someone who really understands what healthcare is about and Healthcare is one of the things we are all struggling with uh, at the moment. And before running for the executive council, um, Councillor Warmington served on the boards of the New Hampshire Professional Health Program, Riverbend Community Mental Health, the Lakes Region Mental Health Center. Uh, and she is the recipient of the Lakes Region Mental Health Center's Pete Harris Community Service Award for her advocacy work to raise awareness of mental health issues. Um, her run for the executive council uh, in this last election cycle was, as far as I can recall, her first foray into elected politics. Uh, and uh, I can honestly tell you, since I was running at the same time, I was able to see firsthand what a terrific campaign she ran in a multi-candidate uh, multi field. She was organized, she was powerful, she presented emotional messaging that really uh, let people understand just what an effective counselor she would be. Um, so, Counselor Cindy Warmington, Cindy, welcome to The Wrap. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. It's so good to see you again and glad to be here. So, uh, first, just uh, what was it like uh, running in a field of, I don't know, it grew to something like eight candidates. Did you expect when you uh, started your journey that you were going to be uh, uh, in that kind of electoral field? I did not. It actually, uh, on the Democratic primary side, it grew to a field of six, and then there were two candidates on the Republican side. Uh, I did not expect to have such a um, crowded field. I have to say, um, someone told me uh, early on in this process that if you decide to run, uh, you will meet so many wonderful people along the way. And I would say that is the truest thing. You probably share that experience. And I would count um, my opponents in my primary race as some of the wonderful people that I met along the way. It, it, was, it was really, a, it was a challenging field because there were so many different candidates from different backgrounds and, and, and many qualified, qualified candidates. Um, you know, in, in, in political terms, a lot of people think that uh, politics is only about raising money. Um, I'm not sure that's true, but it, one of the things that you effectively did in your campaign was you were very focused, very organized, and very professional in the way you went went about the campaign. It struck me that that uh, really served served you well. You started early and you worked hard. Those are two things that I think are important for a candidate. 
I agree. I do want to tell anyone who's ever thinking about running for office that um, that everyone will tell you that it really isn't going to take that much of your time. They're not telling you the truth. It's going to take all of your time. And, uh, and if, you do, if you do a good job, if you get out there and really listen to what the people have to say and really respond to what the needs of the people are, it takes your time. It takes a lot of effort and organization to do that. And I just have to say that if I did not have my wonderful campaign manager, Olivia Bergen, I don't know that I would be anywhere, have been anywhere near as successful. So um, what, what did you hear out, 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 out in the hustings as you, were, as you were campaigning? What did you hear from the people of New Hampshire that, that they wanted in an executive council or that they were concerned about? Because you were running for uh, in, this, in this big Democratic primary in uh, what has been considered a largely Democratic district. And you were, uh, you were running to replace Andrew Valinsky, who was running for governor. But what did you hear from people? Well, you asked the question, what did, they, uh, what did I hear people wanted from an executive counselor? Well, first thing, the first question that anyone running for executive council has to answer is, what is the executive council? <laughs> many, many people do not even know. But once you explain to them that the executive council has a really important role, we confirm all the judicial nominations, we confirm all the appointments to state agencies, boards and commissions, and we review every state contract over $10,000. We put together the, uh, the uh, tenure transportation plan. Once people understand the importance of the executive council, then you really begin to hear the overriding message for me is people want government who work that works for them. And and in specifically across the district, we heard about education funding. We heard about um, people being concerned about the lack of access to broadband. Um, we heard uh, about the protection of our fundamental rights, reproductive rights over and over again is a huge concern. Um, we want people on our courts that are going to uphold, our, uphold the right to vote, uh, the right to marry the one you love. I heard, the, I heard these over and over and over again all across the district. It's, it's interesting because, I mean, traditionally, the executive council um, is not a, a policy body. Uh, you don't make law generally. Um, and in the past, up until the past few years, it was pretty sleepy at the executive council. Nobody paid a whole lot of attention. It was one of these archaic New Hampshire traditions where you'd have these five executive counselors who would, who would gently cajole the governor here and there. And, but there was rarely a political flare up. And in fact, a lot of people consider the executive council in a way uh, a non-political body. Um, one of the great executive counselors uh, when I was running for Congress years and years ago was Ray Burton. And Ray Burton was a fixture in the North Country forever. And, and, and uh, he, when I, when I was running for Congress and asking him for advice, which I did because I thought he was a remarkable politician, his basic advice was it didn't matter uh, which side of the aisle you were on as long as you served your constituents. And uh, he would then hand me a comb with his name on it. 
it was in time when I had hair and could use the comb. So it was it was good. It was good politics. But his his style was 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 in a way a very nonpartisan style. He didn't he didn't care uh, as long as as long as you did good things for the North Country. He was he was happy. And he and I uh, became very we became very friendly. And I tried to do good things for the North Country without regard to who elected me. The, the executive council has become more political. And in fact, now that uh, you're about, uh, you're embarking on your first term on the executive council, there has been a major change in New Hampshire government over the past two years. All the levers of government at, in, the, in the state house, uh, in the executive council, in the corner office, all the levers are now controlled by Republicans. And you are the lone Democrat on uh, five, member executive council. So what are your impressions of, of the council, how it will work, how effective uh, you can be as the lone Democrat? Well, I think that many people listening right now might think that much of the work of the executive council is political, but for the most part, most votes I'm, I would venture to say 90, 95%, maybe more of the votes that come to the executive council are five zero. We're talking about contracts and people on the executive council, no matter which party they're from, are asking good questions about whether those contracts are appropriately serving the people of New Hampshire. Um, many, many, many of the nominations that come before the executive council are not controversial. We are focused on a few um, nominations where we really disagree. We have one coming up this week. And as the lone voice on the executive council in those areas, I may disagree with my colleagues on the executive council, but I will disagree in a respectful way and we will have appropriate civil discourse. To my, to my experience so far, they are all very nice people and very cordial and I hope that you know, we will work together very well on all of those areas where we can get together and do things that are good for the people of New Hampshire. And that's what we really need to be focused on. But in those areas where we disagree, I will stand up and I will be a clear voice for, uh, for the constituents that I represent in District 2. Uh, have you um, had any conversations with the governor about uh, the executive council, what he sees, what he, uh, how he views your role on the council, how you view your role on the council vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the governor on, on whether or not on routine matters or on uh, matters that may cause public controversy? The governor brought the incoming council together for a luncheon before we were sworn in and was very gracious with his time, spent almost two hours with the council talking through some of the things that he sees coming up in, the, in this upcoming session. Uh, one of those things is that we expect that we may see infrastructure money from the Biden administration. And he advised the counselors to reach out across their districts and let people know that if they have infrastructure projects that they want uh, to be considered, they should get them into his office. And we're certainly trying to get that word out. Uh, we talked about the need for broadband, how the lack of access to broadband hinders so many of our communities, including 
uh, the ability for many to access telehealth services, students to participate in, in remote learning, in small businesses really crippled by the lack of, of access to broadband. And you know, I think that we all share a commitment to expanding broadband in the state and the governor certainly expressed his commitment to that. Um, he talked about some uh, of his other concerns and priorities around making sure that um, you know, mental health funding um, is, um, is a concern and um, that uh, you know, we, we're going to have um, budge budgetary issues to, to be concerned about. Um, he made a commitment that all um, pardon requests would come before the council, not all governors do that. So I think that there are areas that, that we will work together very well on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, New Hampshire is facing, uh, along with the COVID crisis and along with uh, the economic fallout from what we've been dealing with with COVID, a longstanding mental health crisis that has frequently been the subject of the press in terms of uh, uh, the adequacy of funding. Um, you know, years and years ago, New Hampshire was uh, a leader in mental health. We we led we led the effort to um, create kind of community mental health services and were a national were a national model. And over the past few years, we've seen a real crisis in our ability to to deal with mental health, including the crisis of substance abuse and opioid addiction and death, which, which has not gone away with COVID. And when I've talked to folks in the mental health field um, uh, about the impact of the COVID uh, pandemic, which has resulted in, if not total lockdown, um, isolation, um, uh, and lone, isolation, loneliness, and depression as mental health issues on top of substance abuse issues. I think one of the things that hasn't really been talked about is we're going to see a huge surge of mental health issues when we kind of take the layer of COVID-19, like a layer of an onion, if when we peel that away, we're going to be left with ongoing serious issues for years and years and years. I'm, I, I hope that uh, the governor really means what he says about focusing on mental health, because it's going to require an enormous amount of funding, because it, it just takes, it takes resources. Agreed. And I uh, recently had a conversation with Commissioner Shibanet about her um, thinking with respect to mental health. We, of course, continue to have many, many um, people in hospital emergency rooms who are not receiving treatment that they need for their care um, when there are no hospital beds open for them. Uh, we have children uh, that are in emergency rooms um, waiting for care. You know, this is, is just wholly and entirely unacceptable. And a large part of this problem is that New Hampshire lacks a lot of the um, treatment mo modules along the continuum of care. We don't have enough intensive outpatient programs. We don't have enough partial hospitalization programs so that both so that you can stop people from ever needing 
um, hospitalization and so that you can discharge them from the hospital and open up those beds for other people that need them. There's a lot of work to be done in the area of mental health. As you said, I've spent a lot of my years in volunteer work working in that area and I will continue to advocate um, for that. And from what I can tell, we have, um, you know, we have some shared values around that, both with the commissioner and some with some of the other counselors. That's uh, that's that's good news for the people in New Hampshire, because, you know, it, often when we talk about issues and political issues, what what's hard for people to understand are the ripple effects uh, of the issues that that can be that seem like isolated issues in the press. I mean, you can talk about opioid addiction and substance abuse and mental health um, problems. Um, you can talk about funding for them, what often people do not really appreciate is what happens in a community in for you know first in families and then in communities from uh, a crisis like a mental like a mental health crisis and the la and the lack of resources um is there you know turning to another economic issue and and we will we're going to get in the in the next segment we're going to get to some uh, a controversial issue coming up but I, these are i want to talk about some of these really important, in a way, bread and butter issues. I mean, dealing with mental health is a bread and butter issue. And the the issue of broadband, rural broadband expansion is also um, a bread and butter issue because the future of the state and its economy, in my judgment, hinge in, in part, and perhaps a large part, on the ability of people uh, to have access to the internet. I mean, we've, in, we've invented this incredible tool, the internet, um, for good or for ill. There are, there's lots, you know, we're trying to adapt to its use. And in some ways during this pandemic, it's been a savior that we've had access to the internet. Right now, you and I are Zooming and recording this radio show over Zoom. Um, so we're both safe. Um, and secure, but there are lots of places in New Hampshire uh, that still are without broadband access to the internet. And given that uh, uh, from an economic standpoint, I don't think we're gonna go back to the way we were. I think people are gonna find that uh, remote work um, is something that can happen when you have broadband and it means that you can be have a productive economy that uh, doesn't always require a lot of travel and a lot of physical presence. But without broadband, New Hampshire will be way behind in developing a 21st century economy. Um, and it's going to require significant public-private uh, partnerships, it, 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 it seems to me. Um, and we've been talking about it a lot, but I'm not sure uh, that we are making the kind of progress that we need to make, and we really do need to make it now. I, I agree 100%. And again, reaching out to my communities all across our district to say, let's line up those projects if you have them and make sure that, the, that we have you know, advised the governor's office of where we are with respect to those projects so that infrastructure money that does become available and we may see more infrastructure money um, in, in the COVID relief um, money that uh, as it comes forward, that we're ready to go forward. I think a lot of the, some of the problem 
we have is that sometimes when that money is available, we're not ready to go with the project. We can't take advantage of it and, and uh, money gets left on the table and we certainly don't want that to happen. Um, I think that you know one of the issues with respect to broadband again is, is education. That is, uh, as I said, one of the critical bread and butter issues that we have uh, the people all across this district were talking to me about. And as you know, there was an important vote uh, at the Executive Council on January 6th to accept the $46 million in charter school funding money. The prior council had rejected that uh, money, but um, this council uh, voted four to one. I voted in opposition to take that money, really because that money is not here to help our existing schools or our existing charter schools. It is here to, um, to create um, 27 new charter schools uh, when the ones we have are many of them are struggling and our, our public schools are certainly struggling. Uh, that money would would further take money away from our public schools. And um, it's it's the wrong, wrong time, wrong place, wrong decision um, for our communities, if you ask me. There are other, um, uh, I know, education initiatives that, um, that the uh, legislature is considering that will further harm our public education system. That isn't, those aren't all specific things that come before the council, but things like who the commissioner of education is and who sits on the board of education, those are decisions that come before the council. And those are factors that I will take into consideration when I'm devoting uh, for, um, for those positions. Well, education in New Hampshire is certainly um, one of those issues where there is a great ideologic divide among people and nothing shows that more than accepting $46 million to create an alternative school system, an alternative to public education that really takes away from public education. This is The Wrap with Paul Hodes on WKXL. We're talking with Executive Counselor Cindy Warmington. We will be back after a short word from those good folks who keep us on the air. Don't go away. We're back. This is The Wrap on WKXL AM and FM. We are talking with Executive Cindy Warmington, Executive Counselor Cindy Warmington. I'm Paul Hodes. We are talking about what it means to be a new executive counselor. And Counselor Warmington, you sound like you are up to speed and working on all cylinders. Um, it's really good to talk to you in, in, your, in your new role. Uh, it's a pleasure to have somebody as articulate and powerful with your values representing us on the executive counselor. I, I, I'm sorry that you're the lonely Democrat on the counselor because I mean, although as we talked about in the first segment, 95% of the voting uh, is, is, is kind of nonpartisan routine approval of, of contracts and non-controversial appointments to, to offices. Uh, there, these days, the New Hampshire Executive Council is a is kind of a um, political political uh, what do we say lightning rod for for certain for certain issues. Um, among them, uh, among those issues have been women's reproductive rights, uh, because uh, the council 
in the past and I'm sure coming up, we'll, we'll deal with issues like contracts with Planned Parenthood uh, for, for services uh, and important uh, nominations to positions of power within the state government. And before we turn to uh, the upcoming vote on uh, the Supreme Court nomination of Attorney General Gordon McDonald to be the, the, the Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court, let's just talk about uh, women's reproductive rights in general. Where, where you see New Hampshire in terms of its citizens, where you see New Hampshire in terms of where the Republican majority is, and um, where what you see coming up in terms of uh, those issues when they come up for contracts in the Executive Council. Well, there's a lot to take on there. Uh, I, of course, am, am very pro-choice. Um, I believe we should trust women to make their own reproductive healthcare decisions. I think that is um, very much in danger right now in the state of New Hampshire. We know that at the federal level, we now have a court that is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. And it, if that happens, when that happens, these issues will be squarely before us in New Hampshire. We currently have a um, Republican legislature that is considering a number of um, bills to ban or restrict women's access to abortion. And the constitutionality of those laws will then be judged by our, our courts and ultimately by our Supreme Court. So I am I'm very concerned. I think that um, New Hampshire is known to be one of the most pro-choice states in the nation. The idea that we could end up with a, a Supreme Court that takes a very uh, opposite opinion and restricts uh, women's access to abortion and their uh, ability to make their own reproductive healthcare decisions, even access to contraception, uh, it is unimaginable. But that is the situation that we are in. And it is one of the reasons that the McDonald nomination has drawn so much attention. So what, what's the current state of play on the New Hampshire Supreme Court? How many, how many justices are there? And can, do you have any sense of where the current Supreme Court um, sits in terms of their view on women's reproductive rights? Well, I think there's great concern that the nominees that um, the governor has appointed, um, the two justices uh, that he has already appointed have um, been very conservative. Um, and I know that, um, that uh, one of them uh, actually uh, was uh, at very active in the Josiah Bartlett uh, center, a very conservative think tank uh, before uh, joining uh, the, the Supreme Court. And um, the addition, uh, we fear, of a Gordon McDonald on that court will be a, a solid uh, majority to, um, to restrict women's access to health, uh, reproductive health care. So right now, for our listeners, just to put things in context, um, there are five uh, seats, right, on the, on the New Hampshire Supreme Court. And uh, I've spent a lot of my 
life as a lawyer uh, up at the Supreme Court, arguing cases before uh, a panel of, of five justices. It's a, um, an august uh, and quite, um, uh, a quite, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's pretty unique. If people have never been to the Supreme Court uh, to watch an argument, it's, um, it's a pretty extraordinary uh, proceeding. It can be arcane, it can be deep in, in the weeds of legal process, but the decisions of the Supreme Court have an enormous impact on uh, the everyday lives uh, of people in New Hampshire. And the governor um, uh, nominated Gordon McDonald, the uh, New Hampshire Attorney General, um, last session to be the supreme, uh, the supreme leader of the Supreme Court. The Chief Justice of the court has an enormous amount of power. Um, that nomination was um, turned down uh, in a very contentious uh, battle uh, with Andrew Volinsky leading the charge against um, the Gordon McDonald nomination. And when that nomination went down in flames, uh, the governor, in no uncertain terms, expressed his, his anger, his pique, uh, his unhappiness, and didn't make any new nomination. Um, and it struck uh, many people that uh, McDonald's background as a lawyer uh, was a strong background. He'd been a successful lawyer. He'd been the attorney general. He had never been uh, a judge. Um, and there were then and are now concerns about his positions on women's reproductive rights. Um, what can you tell us about not so much his lack of judicial experience, which I think for, for some was, was, was a stopper, but um, his, his background on women's reproductive rights? With respect to reproductive rights, Gordon McDonald um, worked uh, with uh, Gordon Humphreys, Senator Gordon Humphreys at the time. Uh, he was his legislative director and also, I believe, chief of staff. And uh, during that time, Gordon Humphreys brought forth various um, constitutional amendments to ban access to abortion. Um, Gordon McDonald took time off after practicing law for some time. He took time off to work on uh, the campaign of Dan Quayle, uh, who uh, voiced in no uncertain terms that he was um, opposed to uh, abortion rights and that he would only nominate Supreme Court justices that shared his, his opinion. Uh, Gordon McDonald uh, was a delegate to the 2016 Presidential Republican Convention for Marco Rubio, who pledged his, um, uh, you know, who pledged to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade or to uh, um, prohibit access to abortion. Um, he was very active um, in the Republican Party and with the Josiah Bartlett Center. Um, and so has, has certainly uh, associated himself in a political way 
with people um, who are very anti-abortion. As you said, he has no judicial experience. So we have no record in that regard on which to judge him. Yeah, there, there, are, many, there are many judges who, who um, uh, have, have spent years, uh, for example, as justices in the judges in the Supreme Court, uh, in the, I'm sorry, in the Superior Court system of New Hampshire, who have written opinions, whose, whose judicial leanings in philosophy uh, can can be understood from their past and who can fairly, uh, you know, fairly be vetted as judges. Well, when you pick a judge who doesn't have any judicial experience, uh, there's not much uh, to go on except looking at what, what they've done in the past. And uh, for example, Gordon McDonald was uh, spent seven years as a board member of the Josiah Bartlett Center, which is without question, a, a right-leaning, right, uh, you know, in terms of the political spectrum, a highly conservative uh, Koch Brothers-funded think tank that opposes the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid expansion, renewable energy. The Josiah Bartlett Center advocates for school vouchers, um, right to work for less laws, uh, I mean, it's it's it is a it is a far right uh, think tank, and in New Hampshire, there's a lot of far right thinking. Gordon McDonald would seem uh, to be one of the chief exponents and proponents of far right thinking. Now, that may serve pretty well as an attorney general um, when you're prosecuting prosecuting uh, criminal criminal cases. Um, and um, some would argue advancing the governor's agenda as opposed to necessarily serving the people of New Hampshire as your client. But as the chief judge of a Supreme Court, which now um, has uh, two very conservative appointments from the governor, this would make a three to two majority on the Supreme Court uh, and um, you and other advocates for women's reproductive rights, people who care um, about the right of every individual to control, frankly, his or her own body um, are standing strong against this nomination. Have you had any conversations with your fellow counselors about their positions and your position? Because there's a vote coming up on Thursday. Uh, and I'm curious about your plans. Now, if they're secret, you don't have to tell anybody. But, but um, if uh, you're thinking about some of your plans for how you're going to handle uh, the hearing and vote, uh, we'd love to. We'd love to hear. So let me clarify that um, there there should not be a vote on Thursday. The hearing is on Thursday. The earliest that there could be a vote would be Friday at the executive council meeting that is scheduled for Friday at 10 a.m. Um, it is my position that, that, that that vote should not happen on Friday, that the purpose of the public hearing is to give the public an opportunity to listen and hear what they have to say and then give input to their executive counselors who will then have an opportunity to vote. I will advocate that that vote should not happen until at least till the next meeting after that, so that all of the public, the public can have an opportunity to give input to their executive counselors. 
I think it's, um, you have hit the nail on the head when it comes to what the concerns are with Gordon, but I wanna be clear about something because I think there's a lot of criticism that this um, process has become very political. It is not the fact that Gordon engaged in partisan politics before becoming attorney general that is the problem. The problem here is that because he also has no judicial experience, we have on, only the only things that we have to judge him by are whatever his past perspective has been, whatever he has is said publicly or written publicly, and how he has behaved as attorney general. I would, in my, estim, in my estimation, he has, as you described, been very much an advocate for the governor's agenda rather than uh, an advocate for the people of New Hampshire. And this is very concerning. And we're going to explore that further at the hearing on, on Thursday. And I just want everyone to know that the hearing is being held in person at the Department of Transportation, but there is uh, there's very limited access, uh, number of people that would be allowed in the room at any given time. Um, but people can participate remotely. You can dial in and you can dial in and indicate that you are attending in favor or in opposition to the hearing. And you can dial in and, and say that you wanna speak either in favor or in opposition of the, of the nomination. So I encourage people to participate in the process. If they have something to say about Gordon McDonald, that please say it. And can, can you give us any of the details of how to find the the dial-in or where where we could go to find out about it? Do you, it? I'm going to have Olivia put that in the chat right now so that we you can see that um, okay. information. But yes, yeah. it's, um, it's posted on the um, Executive Council's website under right. public meetings notices. Um, yep. And I think Olivia's got it right here yep, in the she does. chat. She's so in, in our chat, which yeah. unfortunately our radio listeners can't see, but I can <laughs> uh, go to the executive, the New Hampshire Executive Council website, look under public hearings, and you all can uh, figure out easily how to uh, dial in to the Executive Council hearing on Thursday, um, because given the COVID restrictions, I don't expect that we're going to see the 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 packed hearing the the packed executive council chambers that we are used to for this kind of hearing, but we can pack the uh, the internet um, and make sure that everybody who wants to be heard can be heard on the nomination. Um, I want to turn to to one last uh, issue um, uh, before we go today, and that is. We are, we are talking today um, at a momentous time in the nation's history. Uh, we are two days before the inauguration of a new president and vice president. We are going to be ending the Trump era of division and coddling and inciting white supremacy, which resulted just two weeks ago in the, in the sacking of the Capitol, um, the invasion by um, seditious insurrectionists. And today is Martin Luther King Day. Um, it is finally, finally a holiday um, in New Hampshire, which 
long resisted um, setting Martin Luther King Day uh, as a holiday. And this past summer, let us not forget the, the extraordinary uh, gatherings and protests and education around Black Lives Matter uh, that we saw. I mean, I, I, I was there, there were thousands of young people and old people and black people and brown people and white people. I mean, people of every stripe who were focused on the, the deep concern about a nation that many see founded on white supremacy, whose policies and government over, dec over centuries have been uh, back and forth aligned with issues around white supremacy, um, we've just suffered through four years of, of a, a narcissistic pathological president who was the white supremacist in chief. And so I'm just curious about your thoughts today on Martin Luther King Day for New Hampshire, where the rhetoric has often been divisive, where uh, the, we are a white state largely with a very small minority population. How, how are we going to deal with Black Lives Matter? How are we going to deal with white supremacy in New Hampshire? How are we going to turn around this uh, cultural addiction to othering people in order to feel safe and secure if you're a, if you're a white person looking at demographics which say there are more brown and black people in the world than there are white people and in America white people are soon going to be in a minority and those are the so those are some of the facts um, but, but what's what do we deal how do we deal with it in New Hampshire and how do you see your role as an executive counselor First, let me just say what happened in Washington was um, horrifying and it should never happen in America. And I said that at the first council meeting that this kind of conduct does not come from nowhere. This kind of conduct comes from the politics of hate and the politics of division. And each and every one of us must absolutely take it upon ourselves to do everything we can to stop that. We cannot participate in that. And when I say I will have disagreements with my colleagues, I will disagree with them on policy matters. They don't need to be personal assaults and we don't need to divide each other and we don't need to make every issue a an issue of division. And it starts right there. My commitment, and I, you know, I am committed to increasing diversity in every way I can. I was on the phone with an agency just the other day, and I said to them, you know, are you tracking? Are you tracking the diversity uh, among the recipients of, of your uh, services? And they, they said, no, we're not, but we could be. And we can do that. And then so we, so we started. And that's how we're going to do it. We're going to increase diversity and ask questions about diversity at every opportunity because you have to have everyone's voice at the table. We have to understand as a society that our strength is in our diversity, that it is not a threat, it's an opportunity. And we, that is what America is built on. 
And we need to keep the American promise for every single one of us. Well, this is The Wrap. I'm Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM. We have been talking with counselor, executive counselor, Cindy Warmington about a wide range of subjects. Counselor, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, thank you. We are very fortunate to have someone of your background, your experience, your wisdom and your empathy serving us on the executive council. And I would just uh, say that uh, whatever challenges you meet, whatever opposition you may face, stand up, speak out, don't be afraid. There are people of uh, good faith behind you every step of the way. We're gonna have your back just as you have ours. Thank you. We'll I, so, I so feel that, thank you. <laughs> we'll be back next week with another wrap up of New Hampshire Politics and Talk. See you then.